Welcome, podcast listeners. Today, I have a special treat for you, Ron Carucci. And Ron is somebody that I think you're going to want to do a little extra digging in because even though I have information about Ron and he's an author, one of the things that I've found from doing research on Ron was how he communicates his ideas. So he's got TED Talks, Google Speaks. If you're into anything with podcasting, you'll find him on John Lee Dumas's um, podcast as well. He is also a professor of leadership. He works with executive coaches and it's all about the capability, I guess would be my shorthand, Ron, for, for how you impact people. And then of course, he has his own consulting firm, Navalette. So Ron, would you just add a little bit more about yourself, things that you think will help people understand and hear your message even better? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Sarah. It's great to be with you. Um, you know, I, I think I'm at a place in my career where I'm still, you know, it's that what do I want to be when I grow up? We still haven't quite got this right. Or um, what if we tried this? It's, a, it's an interesting season, you know, after 30 years of doing work in, in, the, in the area of change. And it's much as about, you know, me as an instrument as it is uh, the, effect, the changes I get to affect in the world. You know, when you get to wake up every morning and think about how to make the world a better place, with a group of colleagues at my firm, Navalent, that are equally as passionate about impact, uh, it's not a bad gig. And and yet, you know, there's I think most of us who are who like to le- make change in the world are are haunted by a, a, a constant sense of discontent. You know, we have a we're naturally predisposed to dissatisfaction, um, which is a blessing and a curse. But I think um, I think that's true of many leaders in the world. And it's well, how you how do you aim that discontent? How do you shape your agency in the world so that um, you, you're, you're doing more, more good than you are harm. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, transformations are business and, and we're very privileged to do it. Great. Well, one of the questions that we have been asked by our listeners to ask our guest is to share a time where you face change or challenge that either you went after it yourself or it was one of those, put in your lap kind of change and challenges that you were offered the opportunity to deal with, but it seemed really big at the time. How did you deal with that? And especially how did you overcome your worry and doubt? Yeah. So, you know, I think I, I hearkened back to a time about 13 years ago when we moved to Seattle. Um, I was on the board of a graduate school here and I was stepping off the board to come run the school. Um, and it was the only career move I ever made in my life that I didn't want. It was a, I didn't want the job. I knew I wasn't qualified for it. Um, I knew it was going to be painfully disruptive for my family. And were it not for some deeper sense of vocation, some deeper sense of calling, I would have surely said no. And as a, at the same time, we were starting Navalent. So it was, I was going to be stepping into two jobs at the same time uh, and taking a very fledgling graduate school that had tremendous promise and potential and trying to grow it up. And for the next five years, as Winston Churchill would say, you know, when you're marching through the valley of hell, just keep marching. And it was really a season of tremendous torture and pain and a, a level of du- um, a duplex life where I was trying to grow a thriving firm in an area I was good and trying to be an academician in an academic world because I knew, knew about organizations and I had been on the board where I was unqualified, uh, inexperienced. Uh, not regarded well. I was an outsider who'd come to make change. And if you know anything about the academic world, that, that's not a good thing. 
And so trying to hold the tensions of both those worlds, trying to reacclimate my family and my young children to Seattle. And when you come from New York to Seattle, you should requ it should require a passport. Like that's how different the cultures are. And so um, it was quite a season of turbulence for me and my family. You know, it's you, you like any season of, of change like that, you, you, you hold on, white knuckle it and hope and pray that, you know, when the dust settles, nobody's dead. And uh, but every day you confront your own demons. Every day you confront those terrible narratives in your head that say this was stupid. What were you thinking? They all think you're dumb. You're going to fail. You're going to you're going to hurt this place. You're going to hurt yourself. Your career is going to be ruined and an endless array of those those ghosts. So uh, that, that, that's the context. I don't know how I prepared. I didn't prepare myself for it. I was completely unprepared for it. I think most, you know, unforeseen transitions blindside you, which is odd, right? Because when you're the business of change, you know, it's inevitable, you know, it's coming. And we did choose it. It wasn't like it was foisted upon me. Although I did say no, I said no nine times before I finally gave in. And of course, as is often in the cliche, right? I would look back on that now and say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. It wound up being one of the best decisions I ever made. I became a consultant, a leader, a friend, a parent that I would have never become had I stayed in my comfortable world in New York. My children would have never explored what they're exploring now, become who they become, studied what they're studying, and suffered what they suffered had they not done it. So, you know, you always hope you'll be able to say that about the story in retrospect on the way in, but sure as heck during it, it looks anything but like a good decision. So let me ask you to back up for just a second. And when you talked about keep marching through the valley, if you will, did you have certain things that helped you stay grounded at that time? Because I know that folks want to know, like, what's the technique? Did you have certain habits or practices? What kept you sane, even as you had all these tensions? Well, I can, you know, it's a fabulous question, Sarah. I think I can say, and I said the ones I wish I had done, uh, or should have done. I think um, one of the tremendous things when you're in that much pain is that the, the temptation to isolate is to pull away. You know, I, I ripped up my roots of great community and friendships and, and professional colleagues and um, spiritual colleagues and community. And I didn't, you don't easily replace that 4,000 miles away. And I wasn't quick enough to rec recreate the kinds of relationships and support structures you so desperately need during that time. And so my resilience suffered because I didn't have adequate community around me. And so I think one of the things I would tell people as a, as a critical ritual is to create community, create support structures, create valued, trusted advisors and sets of third eyes on your life to, to narrate the story for you because your own ability to narrate it is going to be tremendously compromised when you're in pain. By the end of the five years, I was very fortunate um, that I had I had enough narrators around me that I invited them into a, a season of six months of um, grieving and, a, and six months of reflection because I, at the end of the five years, I was, I was like barely gasping across that finish line when I finished my time at the school. And the, the haunting question for me was, I don't know who I became in these five years and I'm not sure I like who I became and I need help. And so I invited these, you know, nine close friends to join me for six months of really hard journaling and reflection and, you know, venting and crying and, and thoughtful understanding of, so who, who was I now and what did I want to do with that? And at the end of that six months was a summer of hiking and journaling and 
ended with a great boat trip on a sailboat with them and a great celebration of realizing, wow, I had become somebody I hadn't realized I'd become. I had gained capabilities and perspectives and thicker skin and, and muscles I had never had and that I actually could enjoy and use. And, and I needed to heal and grieve from that season and move on. Um, but having thought about defining what I wanted the story to be, realized I had a lot more control of how I, how that story, how I call that story. One of my favorite social research studies is of baseball umpires. And they studied all these baseball umpires wondering, how do they so quickly, you know, the ball comes across the plate, how do they so quickly call it a ball or a strike? And they interviewed these umpires, and the first umpire said, well, I don't know, it's easy. If it's a ball, I call it a ball. If it's a strike, I call it a strike. Or I just call it like I see it. There was a sense of deep in intuition. But one of the umpires said something very profound. He said, well, it's simple because they ain't nothing till I call it. And I think that's so true of life, right? It's what you call it. And I could have called that a large mistake, a season of great pain, a season of sacrifice and suffering, a season of persecution. Um, and that's how it would have stayed in the story. Um, I love Bob Goff's quote. He says, sometimes the best chapters in life don't have titles so much later. And I think the title of that chapter has refined and evolved uh, over, the, over the nine years since they ended. And that was a season of refinement and becoming that never would have happened any other way in my life. So I think you've got to practice your narrating skills. You've got to practice a balanced ability to call what you're seeing and have others call it with you. Certainly, you've got to take care of your health. You have to take care of your body. You have to take care of your soul. And as cliche as those things sound, I can tell you as poorly as I did them during those five years, they are critical. And you've got to have those structures in place for self-care. You have to have structures in place for self-honesty. You have to have structures in place to maintain resilience and community. And if you don't, you know, the, the transition is likely to, to suffer. So Ron, you just dumped a bunch of really big ideas and powerful information and, and pieces of advice. You told the umpire story and it's not a ball till I call it, or it's nothing until I call it, basically. It really is that thing about framing your own existence and mm -hmm. deciding what it is. But then you talked about having people in your life to kind of help you and I, these are my words, but to test that kind of with, how do you decide who is in that circle? Because that's a very trusted and um, that's a precious offering to be asked from someone to be in their circle. How mm -hmm. do you choose who is in your circle? That's a great question. You know, so I think it's got to be a, a mutuality. I, irony, ironically, the people in my life today are not, are, they're peers in my life. But they're people who are my graduate students. They're leaders I trained. So some of them are a decade plus my junior. Um, and so, but our participation in one another's lives, it has to be mutual. You know, your, your voices have to be mutually welcome. I think one of the problems of mentoring today is it's such a one-way thing. And I think most millennials want mentors where it can be a two-way relationship. And I think you have to have a sense of mutuality. You have to have a sense of courage. There can, nothing can be off the table. You, you, you can't gauge vulnerability in degrees, right? You either have to open the kimono or not. And you have to have access to the crevices that you typically keep dark. And, and you have to be willing to push through the membranes of others' resistance as well. And so you have to have a mutual agreement that we're here to be refining presences in each other's life. We're here to speak the things that no one else will say. 
both the positive things and the hard things. Self-honesty is not an individual sport, right? Self-honesty requires others. Um, our development is not, you know, an individual activity. You know, our, our personal improvement is a, group, is a group sport. And so you have to have eyes whose judgments and reflections and insights you can trust. And, and those are very intentional contracts, right? It's not just a, hey, let's grab a beer. Oh, let's get coffee. It has to be a, hey, who do we want to be to each other? Do you just want to be the casual acquaintance or do you, do you really want to be worthy of the time you spend with those people? So I can imagine someone saying, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to reach out and I want to have my own um, six months journey with this handful of folks. Did you lead that? So this is a really thinking about someone. It's like, so if I set that up, am I the leader of it? Is it co-created with the folks who say I'm in an equal measure with you? I'm willing to be vulnerable myself. Or was it a one-way folks were there to reflect back on what you were mm -hmm. sharing? No, no, it was very two-way. I mean, I, I, I coordinated a lot of the activities, but I, I shared the journaling work with everybody. And then when we go on these hikes or have dinners or, you know, throughout that six months, they were free to speak, to ask questions, to offer support to challenge my assumptions in very open ways. It was a season where, you know, our, our relationships had already been established and we had already had a mutual sense of participation in each other's lives. This was a very specific initiative that I asked for their help in uh, as a way to understand and close out that particular season so that I could move on and not carry, you know, the baggage, right? Not to have it be a haunting experience. So I think it has to be co-created. You have to, you know, spearhead it in some way because it's your life and while you're offering others to help pick up the pen for the chapter as you narrate it you it's ultimately your story to narrate i i think it's an intentional invitation i think you have to sit down and talk about and articulate what it is you want from an experience like that um set the boundaries for what it is you're asking others to participate in and what it is you're asking them to contribute because it's a commitment and be very thoughtful about the contract you create so that was the Ron before the six months. Mm. You do your six months. What are you taking forward right now? Who is the Ron now? What are the things that you're going after now that you're applying those lessons learned along the way, either personally or in your professional work that you're doing with others? Well, I think, gosh, there's a number of those. You know, so now I've had the luxury of the last um, nine years of only having one job, you know, of only working, only, only having Navalent to focus on with my colleagues which has been wonderful. And, you know, about three years ago, I hired a coach. Um, I realized that it was time to take some of my own medicine and really have, you know, have another join me as I thought about, you know, this season of my career and optimizing what I had learned and optimizing the thoughts I wanted to share with the world. And I thought I knew what I was doing, but I, I, I learned that I didn't. <laughs> and so that was a wonderful experience from, it has been, and she's been my coach for three years now, and it's been a great, great journey of my own formation to realize that, you know, just because you've been doing something for 30 years doesn't mean you get, you get to coast. The world around me has dramatically changed. The number of people working in the field of organizations and leadership has, you know, intensified by a hundredfold. So part of uh, distinction, what, where I'm focused right now is the, the issue of differentiation and distinction. How does Navalent tell its story? How does Navalent separate ourselves from others? How do we own the capabilities we have? Um, and what I would take from that season is patience and resilience, although there are days you would never know I was taking those things with me. <laughs> um, but, but how do you, you know, how do you 
narrate your own story. How do you let the world understand who you are um, and what it is you have to offer and how that differs from what others are doing. Um, and that's so much more difficult to do than it sounds today in a very crowded and cluttered world. Do your podcast, right? There's 300,000 podcasts out there. And, and so And growing. And so how do you maintain your share of voice? How do you maintain your share of mind from others who are consuming content by the second um, and still create value for them? So you've got a coach, which is a huge commitment. And uh, I liked when you said to take your own medicine. I'm wondering what are some of your success habits or practices that you have in place now, maybe as a result of working with a coach that are different than you had when you weren't working with someone? Certainly how I read uh, material, how I, how I look at other, others for insights and lessons, what I choose to, what content I choose to curate for myself and others is much more planful and intentional. Now, when I write, I write for Forbes, I write for Harvard Business Review, um, I do research. I'm much more thoughtful now about the audience and the voice I bring. Um, or when I speak on videos that you, you mentioned earlier, just the idea of being thoughtful about creating that content is a brand new muscle for me, much less in what voice and for whom. So I'm, those are much more careful disciplines than I've had before. You ha and you have to be consistent. That is such a critical discipline in the world of trying to you know, find your voice and use your voice and make a difference for others and, and build a profession and, and a, or a practice around that. Consistency is so critical. So those kinds of disciplines have become all new muscles for me in the last three years. And of course, one of the biggest pain, painful parts of learning is that the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And, and that's, it can be, it's maddening, right? I mean, it's just, it's just crazy making to realize you just think you hit this plateau and all of a sudden the mountain got a thousand feet taller. Yes. Um, and that's just the, and that's just called real life, right? There's nothing unusual about that. It's, it's the expectation that it shouldn't be that way that, that really drives you crazy. You know, trying to deal with those moments of, oh, crap, what did I get myself into here? Or how much longer do I have to do this? Or why isn't it working as fast as I want? Or any of that. Those moments you really have to dig deep and just keep going. So Ron, thinking back to before you moved to Seattle, you know, so you're back mm -hmm. in New York, life's cruising along, you're comfortable. Your kids have not been uprooted. What advice would you give yourself at that age, knowing now what you know, that might help you go through that journey? Gosh, um, don't get so comfortable. You know, I mean, I think John Lennon said it so well, you know, life is what happens when you plan other things. And I think I had such a sense of uh, false predictability, right? And, and who knows how my career would have gone there. It probably would have gone just fine. It wouldn't have been ex exciting. It probably would have gotten boring very soon, but it would have been fine. But I don't think I was, I don't think we're built for fine. I think we're built for more than that. And so I think I would have said, you know, disrupt yourself. Stop trying to contain predictability and routine and, you know, when you're raising young kids and have a family and a home and a mortgage and a career and you're in a firm where there's, you know, an upward track and whatever, you know, there are certain mindsets you get into that um, actually that, that narrow your view of the world, that, that create deep-seated fears of disruption and unhealthy comparisons and all kinds of neurotic underbrush that, you know, you see it, you, you walk the streets of any big city or walk in any big corporation, you see it. 
And it just constrains people from becoming all they're able to become. One of the things my mentor said to me, she's been my mentor for 30, 40 years now. She's in her late seventies and still going strong and changing the world. But she said to me very early on, nothing in life is irrevocable except death, you know, which is code for, you have to try, you're going to skin your knees. You get, you, you do get do-overs. There are some things you don't get do-overs for, but, but more than we think we get do-overs. And so if you're constrained by, you know, thinking habits that have been forced on you or that certain um, lifestyles or professional paradigms have put on you, just recognize that you're probably sacrificing huge parts of what you could become to stay true to those beliefs. Well, I have two last questions for you. Well, I want to make a comment first. And one is that I love listening to you speak because it um, you evoke images when you talk. And I don't know if you're aware of that, but uh, so far I've been riding a bike up a hill waiting to coast thinking, come on, baby, there is a plateau just at least for 20 minutes so I can coast. <laughs> um, but that whole underbrush, and when you live in Nevada and there's tumbleweeds and out in the high desert, that actually does evoke kind of a feeling around it. So yeah. um, I don't know if that's intentional, but it, it's very powerful. My question, <laughs> my specific question to you is, um, what are you reading right now? Since you said you were so intentional about what you consume, what are you reading right now? I just uh, am finishing up Eric Barker's uh, Barking Up the Wrong Tree. What we know about success is largely wrong. Such a great book, full of rich stories and research. And I actually just interviewed him for my Forbes column as well, because I, I loved his book. That's a great book. I'm reading um, uh, Robbie Baxter's The Membership Economy, about how, how people are want to pay for community. They want to pay for joining, not, not just content or product, but they want to pay for um, membership. Uh, and how do you know, how do we create communities, uh, virtual or otherwise, of people who are like-minded in what they're trying to get or become, and help them with that journey? So, yeah. Then my last question for you is: If folks are interested in knowing more about Navalent, more about you in particular, what's your preferred way of people reaching out to you? Gosh, I'd love to keep chatting with your listeners if they want to keep talking. A couple of ways. So if they come to Navalent and A V A L E N T dot com. Um, we've got a bunch of great resources there, some great videos and some white papers. Um, we've got a great quarterly magazine. We, we, we publish on uh, all kinds of topics of organizations and teams and relationships and leadership. Um, if you come to navalo.com slash transformation, we have a free ebook called Leading Transformation in Organizations. It's sort of our blueprint for how it is we think about constructing transformational journeys. We'd love to give that to you for free as well. Um, information about my books is also on the website. I can also be found on LinkedIn. Uh, and Twitter at, at Ron Carucci. I'm guessing you put all that stuff in the show notes. And so, yeah, I would love to keep the conversation going and get to know more about your story as well. There are some things I am going to reach out to you about because I'm curious. So you can count on that. And I want to thank you for taking time today to be on this. I know just from some of the things you've shared that there are people who will go out and they're going to want to download your transformation sheet, look at your books. I will be one of the people who does that. So you'll, you'll get my email on there. I would want to talk to you more, and I'm curious, maybe we can have a follow-up conversation about the membership community and the paid communities, because I, too, see that more and more and was asked a question on a TV interview the day before yesterday of how do I define community? And mm -hmm. the question may, took me back for a minute because I knew the context in which they were asking it meant our local community, but I really think of it 
in a much, it's almost like where you are and where your people are, whether you've paid for it or whatever. Um, and then a curiosity about what that le what we miss out on when those are our communities. So count on having another conversation if you're up for it. Sarah, I love it. I look forward to it. So that's it for this week's episode. If you liked what you heard, please hop on over to iTunes or wherever else you listen to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. This helps us get the word out to more people just like you who want to live a no-labels, no-limits life. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.